Will you pray with me? Holy God, we ask that you open our minds and our hearts to your word this morning. May your spirit move within us, through us, and all around this place. And may all that we do this morning give you honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our family does not have a typical pet because we have a very rowdy two-year-old who is not unlike a puppy himself. (laughs) But we enthusiastically welcome all kinds of wildlife visitors to our yard, the free pets. Um, Squeals of joy reverberate through our house, the sights of rabbits, deer, turkeys, and even the lowly squirrels, who the girls love to chase away from the bird feeders when they show up. And the reason they do this is because the bird feeder is our most important wildlife attractor in the yard. We love the birds best. From vibrant bluebirds to rare rose-breasted grosbeaks to everyday finches and wrens, the variety never fails to fascinate us. But the most frequent visitors that we've come to expect daily are the morning doves. We hear them cooing. We see them pecking in groups all along the ground or resting at sunrise on our shed. Gentle and graceful, they come and go without fail. We would be alarmed if we didn't see them every single day. How curious that God would choose the dove to show his spiritual presence in the world. One might assume that a mighty God, creator of the universe and all living things, would choose a more impressive creature. Maybe something large and powerful like an eagle, dominating the sky and commanding awe from all those who pass under its shadow. Or perhaps an exotic tropical bird, vibrant with color and able to mimic human sounds with sharp accuracy. Even an ostrich, massive, fast, and intimidating, might better reflect the greatness of our Lord. But God instead chose the plain, simple dove, a bird that appears to be everywhere. Though seemingly unremarkable, the dove's gentle nature stands contrary to a turbulent world. They are approachable birds, not prone to attack, and may even eat from a trusted hand. Their muted gray tones suggest that goodness and beauty can be found in the most ordinary and common of creatures. 
Our God uses this bird to describe the nature of his Holy Spirit, not flashy, aggressive, or rare, but gentle, approachable, and ever-present. The parallels between doves and the Holy Spirit's movements are apparent throughout Scripture. Like a common bird, the Spirit might easily be overlooked, his movements and activity taken for granted. But it is only through the Spirit that the abundant life that God promises to his children is accessible. In the beginning, God's Spirit hovered over the dark waters of creation like a dove, moving with purpose to offer abundant life at the birth of all things. The peak of this creative process was his formation of people bearing his image. Breathing his own life into them, their hearts fluttered, their lungs caught their first breath, and their minds became aware that God was with them, moving in, through, and all around them. In that moment, God declared them good. But then wickedness corrupted the goodness he placed in their hearts. And they began to resemble the serpent more than their true father. Grieved, God allowed the dark waters to return in a flood, destroying all but a few. But then the spirit again hovered like a dove over the waters, bringing evidence of new life, new beginnings, and a future to Noah and the creatures sheltered in the ark. At its final release, the dove took flight and never returned, carrying God's spirit out to inspire new life from a dead world. Ages later, the spirit would hover over the waters again. But unlike the past when he looked down upon creatures, this time he gazed upon his own son, upon himself, at the waters of baptism. As God himself in human form enters the swirling, muddy Jordan River, a new creation begins, forever shifting humanity's relationship with God. In humility, Jesus seeks baptism from a rather baffled John the Baptist because, as Jesus says, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, righteousness, simply put, is orienting things in their proper relationship or place according to God. The trouble is the whole world stood and still stands in a place of unrighteousness before God. Humanity has never managed to uphold our end of God's covenants and promises with us. As uh, sin reduces us to creatures rather than image bearers of our maker, the righteousness God requires of his children remains dreadfully and impossibly beyond grasp. But Jesus claims here that his baptism is proper and the process he's going to begin to fulfill all righteousness. Our Lord vows to stand in our place, upholding our end of the covenants and fulfilling our responsibility before God so we may be reconciled with him. Jesus's first step before his ministry even begins starts here when he wades into the murky waters of sinful, human sinfulness and transforms a cleansing ritual into a spirit-filled sacrament. As he rises out of the water, the heavens open and down glides the spirit like a dove, pouring God's presence into Jesus. For the first time, as writer Paul Pastor explains, 
Humanity, under God's spirit, had sent up a shoot, a sprout suitable for God, the dove of heaven himself, to rest on without hesitation. The miracle here is even more spectacular when we consider the dove symbolism. In Jesus, God's spirit finally has a place to land and nest permanently in the hearts of humanity. The spirit moves within each of us to make a new home. And at the same time, that spiritual dove overcomes the serpent's power to crush and prevent abundant life of God from flourishing within his people. Like a dove landing next to you on a park bench, God's grace is unexpected and beautiful. As the dove settles on Jesus, God declares, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. His proclamation transforms every baptism henceforth into an adoption, a seal of God's love and an invitation to belong to his family. Anyone who follows Jesus into the waters of recreation are claimed as children of God who are deeply loved, but also seen as good and pleasing to our Father. Hear that same love and delight that very good that God declared over Adam and Eve at creation is here repeated over all who follow Christ in baptism. It's the kind of love that should have been the reality for everyone all along. It took Jesus's arrival in the flesh to reconcile us and restore that reality. But even if we know this to be true on a cognitive level, it remains hard to believe that we are welcomed into this new reality, much less approach life consciously aware of this truth. We might know in our heads that God unconditionally loves us, that he sacrificed his son and he pours out his spirit in us, that he claims us as his valuable children. But knowing something is not the same as believing it. In fact, believing God loves us might be one of the most challenging realities to accept on faith. Again, Paul Pastor writes, we are a marvel because Christ is a marvel. And we can be just like our older brother if we long to be. We can be the place where the dove is pleased to perch. But how many times I have shrugged off the foot of God. How many times I have failed to know that I am, simply and without condition, God's beloved in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Though God's love is real and he dwells within us, sin lingers. Clouding our perception of God and ourselves, sin strives to keep us blind and ignorant of the truth. And doubting God's love is easy, We do it in many ways, but at least three distinct ways. First, broken relationships and systems are skilled at making people feel badly about themselves. Too often, many of us have been told that we are unlovable by people in positions of authority and influence. Family members, teachers, public figures, or regrettably even religious leaders all have tremendous and lasting power to shape our self-perception. When those people fail to encourage and care or provide love for those entrusted to them, they can pervasively crush 
demean and snuff out any sense of loveliness or self-worth. One can only be told they are a disappointment or a failure so many times before that belief becomes ingrained. Convinced of our worthlessness by those who should love us, why, we might assume, would God see any value in us? Second, sin also distorts how we view ourselves by emphasizing our past while minimizing God's promises. Through mistakes or bad choices, we can allow our worst days to define us, haunting us with shame and regret. Even when reconciliations or pro- when reconciliations happen or progress is made, memories cling to us like a shadow that we can't quite shake, tormenting us when we are most spiritually vulnerable. Like the prodigal son whose impulsive choices landed him impoverished and alone, we fear our actions are somehow unforgivable that perhaps our Father will no longer welcome us in his brace, that we are forsaken, doomed to be forever bound to our past. How could God ever love somebody who has behaved so poorly, hurt people, and squandered blessings in pursuit of self? That love could overcome so much baggage feels unbelievable. Finally, God's love may seem distant when confronted with the suffering of existence in a broken world. Tragedy strikes. Unpredictable evil devastates in senseless ways. In a split second, life's fragility can become alarmingly real. The loss of a loved one, the destructive forces of natural disasters or war, the suffering of others, or the suffering we we have experienced in our own valleys— They're all beyond control and comprehension. Pain or grief threatens to overwhelm our senses, leaving skeptical doubt of a loving God in their wake. If God loves us, why do we suffer? Why won't God deliver us from unbearable circumstances? Why won't he stop tragedy from happening? Like Martha, when her brother Lazarus died, we cried out, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, you could have done something. You could have stopped it. But the worst happened. How can you possibly call us beloved? But friends, this one moment with Jesus in a river silences every doubt. In Jesus, the Holy Spirit declares that God's love is bigger than anything and everything else rebuking all that destroys, deceives, and steals. When God speaks, truth is revealed, life is created, and reality is established. When God looks on us, he sees Jesus. He sees his spirit fluttering and landing and fluttering again as we are shaped and formed more into Christ's likeness. The moments of self-doubt and terrible choices and painful suffering are no mystery to him. And his very presence in the spirit overcomes, redeems, and heals all in his perfect time. He does not look on our human condition with passive distance, but joins himself to us, enduring what we endure and declaring that sin 
has lost its grip and that evil does not win. Because of Christ, the dove has landed, sealing God's love in us forever. We are his, and we have nothing to fear as his children. God's love is large enough to forgive and embrace the prodigal son, gentle enough to comfort Mary and Martha, and powerful enough to bring Lazarus back from the dead. His love sacrifices all for us because he formed us to be like him, to see what he sees, and to love what he loves. The Spirit helps us to do more than endure. Secure in God's loving presence within us, we may boldly venture into the shadowy places to champion the unloved and advocate for those deemed worthless, encouraging others to see themselves as their Heavenly Father does. But it all starts with allowing the dove to gently move and shape us as beloved children of our God, pleasing to our Father. Perhaps one of the best summaries of this love um, can be found in the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, a confessional standard with, with which many lifelong Presbyterians may be familiar. Believing God's love for us is hard when so many forces are working to convince us otherwise. And these words from the Catechism serve to remind and encourage us of the truth. The Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death. In response, our only comfort is this, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Church, learning to see ourselves as God does may be a lifelong challenge. But always remember, we are our beloveds, and our beloved is ours. Amen.